Hey, I'm Steve Full, and thanks for listening. This time, let's find out what it's like being freelance for web developer Elliot Taylor. Being picky with your clients is really important and not saying yes to every client. Meetups are a fantastic way to meet other people and a fantastic way to grow your business, and it's been a godsend for me. All the skills that you've filled up in your previous work do come back to help you eventually. So yes, there is Elliot, who is a web developer known for his WordPress and WooCommerce development based in Brighton here in the UK, and more from him in a moment. But let me just say hello. How are you? You're looking lovely this week. You can find over 100 guests at beingfreelance.com, but also wherever you get your podcast. Don't forget, it doesn't matter what they do for a living. It's all about the being freelance. So go take a look there. And uh, as well as listening to them, you can get in touch with them as well. Uh, it's always really nice when you reach out to them. If you've particularly enjoyed an episode, you can find all their social media handles at being freelance.com as well the vlog continues at being freelance.com and also on youtube where i document my freelance week instead of talking to other people about it and we've got some new articles up at beingfreelance.com as well. Recent ones on your personal brand as a freelancer, which I really like. And also one about outsourcing. So sort of like buying back bits of time in the ever-ending search for work-life balance by outsourcing to other freelancers. We kind of like pulled together both my experience, but also quotes and stuff from other guests for both of those articles. So really nice if you take a look at beingfreelance.com. And if you enjoyed them, of course, share them as well as sharing the podcast and the, the videos as well. And yes, just tell other people about uh, about the fact that all of this exists. It would, would be marvellous. Be a love. Go on. Right now, though, let's crack on with this week's guest and chat to web developer Elliot Taylor. Hey, Elliot. Hi, Steve. Nice to uh, be on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for doing this. Let's find out, first of all, though, how you got started as ever being freelance. Uh, being freelance, I went uh, in a gradual journey. I started with a three-day-a-week job and slowly, slowly edged out of that and went full-time free- freelance. I was trying to be as sensible as possible when doing something like that. So what were you doing? Were you in a an, an agency role or like where were you first? Uh, well, I did lots and lots of different jobs prior to um, getting into tech and prior to getting into freelance. But my tech life started working for a company called I Want One of Those, it was sort of a, a oh, dot yeah. com. Yeah, it was a gifty kind of place. And uh, then from there, I went on to a, a music retailer and worked. So both jobs there were working on the e-commerce management. So looking after everything from the marketing all the way through to the tech. And I got the itch to go freelance and create my own company and move as well back down to Brighton, where I am now. That's uh, that sort of when I went freelance, I got a part time job doing sort of marketing things and uh, started working on the side. Okay, so let's just put that in perspective. So, when when did you start to think I'm going to start to do something on the side? Like, what sort of year was that? Tricky, tricky. I mean, this is recalling some distant, dusty memories, but I think I've always had an itch and I've always been looking and playing with tech since I've since I was young. I wanted the freedom that freelancing gave you. I wanted to. I knew that the old expression: "It's not the, it's not the hours in the day; it's the days in the hour." And I could sometimes I could be extraordinarily productive in a short amount of time, but being stuck to the nine to five or nine to six routine was a bit stifling. So I, I suppose I always always had itchy feet doing jobs prior to that. You know, the classic nine to five jobs. 
So tell us a story. So what happens then? You're saving up enough money to get the... Yeah, I, I had a fantastic job. I mean, it wasn't the smart decision to do. I had a really, uh, really fortunate, I was quite young and had a very good job, but wasn't going di- totally in the direction I wanted. And I was hungry for a bit more. So decided to pack it in and move down and get this three day a week job, uh, which was, it was okay. It wasn't particularly uh, inspiring, but it what it did do is allow me to focus on developing a brand and developing a business and developing my skills as well. I won't say it was the smartest move. I mean, the first two or three years of anyone's freelance life are probably the hardest. And I was, I was no exception in that case. So were you work, you were working freelance in house for someone, were you for three days a week? It was, it was a part-time gig working, doing the same, same, same role, but it was nice to have that consistency so I could transition to sort of taking on clients on a full-term basis. And what did you do with the the rest of your time at that point? I taught myself. I mean, prior to that, actually, I started out as a marketer, a marketer and a sort of a, a generalist, my previous job being a manage, management of, um, of e-commerce companies. So I taught myself how to program. It might sound a bit bit like a, a step backwards but it's always been something that's interests me so i took on wordpress work and i developed my skills and i've not stopped really no that's cool and then when did you begin to bring on your actual f- own freelance clients outside of that part-time job well at the beginning it was as soon as possible and it was um it was anyone i could find uh, scout around the country in my car going to meetings and making all the mistakes that uh, I would I would avoid now but spoke to people and tried to found found job opportunities and went and met people and tried to uh, help them out with their projects and like what was your ambition at that point where you know you just started teaching yourself this new skill essentially my my initial ambition I saw an opportunity with the move of e-commerce to WordPress. And that was one of the main triggers that sort of spurred me on to becoming a freelancer. Previously, I've been working with clients where they'd be spending 20 to 50K standard to build an e-commerce site. And I knew that as soon as Tigo Shop and WooCommerce were mature enough, which they'd become at that point, that there was going to be a massive disruption in that industry. And there was an opportunity for a for an agency, a freelancer, or for somebody to get into that space and sell and build good sites for a fraction of the price. Ah, excellent. So you kind of like had your your niche and your audience figured out. Yes. Having come from that e-commerce world, I knew the terrain and and I knew that there was a market that was ripe to tap into. And presumably there there must have been quite a lot of skills then that you took from your your past experience into this new world. Yeah, totally. I um, I think we always we always reuse our skills, whatever they um, they might be in the past, and to what we do now. All the skills that you build up in your previous work do come back to help and help you eventually. Mm. So, how did you evolve your business from there? I grew in uh, grew in as much as I got bigger and better clients, and then the step after that was to try and build an agency. Eventually, we went up to about four to five people, and we did that for a while. I worked with my wife as well in the business. That went all right for for a while, and it was but it was very high pressure and yeah, quite a lot of hard work. And as I'm sure anyone who's tried to grow their company from one person to um, to multiple people knows. Can you explain it though for those of us who don't know it? Like what what is that pressure? I think at least I'll t- I'll t- I can talk about my own naive- naivety going 
through the process was that um, I thought bringing on an additional person meant I would bring on 100% more resource or 100% more time that could be worked on a project. But there's a lot of administration and training and handholding so that you both you both work together doing the project correctly. So you don't bring on 100% more resource, you bring on 60 to 80% more resource. And, th- and that happens each time you bring somebody else on. So scaling up with multiple people can be hard and it can be slow. And especially if you're bringing in the um, got to pay for everyone every month and you've got those mouths to feed, the pressure there is very high. So you can get a, a nice whale of a project that might last you six months. But once that's expired, have you been focused so much on that project that you've neglected your sales? And getting that balance right is the hard part. At least that's what I found very hard. And I guess does cash flow become trickier as well? Yes, cash flow is very tricky. You know, majority of clients, we worked on a 40% upfront and a 60% on completion. But projects drag. Anyone who's freelanced in the development world knows projects can drag. And then you get into cash flow issues and, um, and all the strain that goes with that. So when you said you were doing it for quite a while as an agency, how long is quite a while? Was it a few months or was it a few years? Or Yeah, it's about four years. Oh, right. Okay. So it must have been going pretty well. Yeah, no, it was very good. You know, at every t- turn, we, we learned a lot and we improved. And they're not insurmountable problems. You know, they're engineering problems. You have to work out how you structure a company and you've got to learn from others. There's lots of successful agencies out there from, to learn from. And indeed, it could have been a direction that I continue to go in. And I do consider it again now whether to build up a little agency specializing. So it's still an option. So at what point did that change then? Did something happen where you then decided to scale back? I, th- uh, I mean, one of the factors was working with my wife and we decided that um, for both our sanities that we should probably separate uh, how we work together. And also some of, the, some of the projects I was getting on to were a bit more specialized and um, I needed to give my full attention. At that point, I've become a more proficient programmer so I could focus and get bigger jobs working as a specialist. And so was it like a gradual thing or did you eventually think, okay, well, this is the last project and then guys, you're out of a job? No, we, we did it very gradually and very amicably um, with everyone else in the team. And uh, it wasn't a problem in that respect. We, it, was, it was all very fine and we could have scaled back up if we wanted, but everyone was happy uh, with the way that the company went. And now actually, I mean, I work in a very similar manner, but I work with other freelancers. So a lot of those skills from developing the agencies are still in use every day. But rather than being the the point man going in to build a project, I now partner up with other specialists and I will put together a, a dream team of other specialists in Brighton and we'll go and work on the project together. And that's actually worked out really well. Cool. And so is that working remotely, but because you're in the same city or town, you're, you're able to come together? Yes, exactly. So right now I'm talking from the Skiff in Brighton, which is a co-working space. And within this space, there are um, other freelancers and we'll come together. We'll do meetings in the Skiff. We'll sometimes work together in the Skiff. Uh, but we've also got the flexibility to work on our own time and um, our own schedules. When you were the agency, did you actually have an office? We worked from co-working as well. So it, it wasn't a huge transition. So it was very similar. Yeah, yeah. Have, have you ever totally just worked from home? Yes, at the very beginning, kitchen table, all the, all the cliches, that's what I did. And what got you out then into the co-working spaces? Uh, well, having the budget, I think, to start with. I mean, it's not very expensive to get a co-working space, but when you're um, starting out, it is expensive. It's, a, it's an outgoing that you want to minimise. So having the budget to go into the co-working space. And then after a while, I realised they 
it pays for itself with the connections that you make here and the referrals that you get, just as I refer designers and other developers for work I get, I get referred as well. So the the co-working space does pay for itself. That's cool. And is there a sense of community there? There is. I mean, I, uh, I'm half an hour late for this phone call because, uh, there was a tapas Tuesday (laughs) downstairs. So I had to, had to pull out the emergency card and and postpone this a little bit because yeah there is a sense of community in the skiff we all sat down together and had a nice uh, bit of spanish food and some nibbles uh, and that sort of thing happens regularly in brighton there are four or five different co-working spaces all slightly different but the skiff is uh, it's a lovely place and great opportunity to meet other people especially you know compared to working at home and being sort of uninspired on the kitchen table you've got into organizing meetups and stuff haven't you Yes, meetups are a fantastic way to meet other people and a fantastic way to grow your business. And it's been a godsend for me. Um, I started going to a networking pub event called The Farm in Brighton. And uh, that was great fun to learn from other freelancers uh, about how to how to freelance, how to find accountants, how to deal with tricky clients, things I'm doing right, things I'm doing wrong, such, such and forth. And from that, I got involved with running the WooCommerce London meetup, the WordPress Brighton meetup, and now the uh, the WordCamp Brighton, which these are our own sort of little jingoist terms, but for the WordPress community, so meetups from WordPress. Crikey, that's quite a lot. How, how, how do you manage to like organize all of that alongside work and life? Yeah, I mean, it takes up time, but it's, you know, I put it down from as marketing time, time that I should be spending building up my business, building up the, the, the brand of the company. So it's uh, as long as you just see it, you know, see it as a business expense, um, it's, you just factor it in with all your other work. And do you ever get up and speak at these things or is it, or is it not that sort of thing? I do speak, yeah. Often try not to, try not to speak at the, the events I put on, so give other people an opportunity. So I speak at other events, for example. Uh, we spoke at WordCamp London the other weekend and I get involved. And I think you were there, Steve, as well. I was there, yes. We were in different rooms, I think. Which day were you on? I was on the first day. It was a really nice event, though. I was struck by how lovely all the WordPress-type people are, actually, as as a community and of people at so many different levels within it, if you see what I mean. Very much so. It's uh, It prides itself on inclusivity, and I think that's a you know part of the open-source community feel for it you know it's not um, exclusionary it's not saying oh this is just for people who know this we try and include everyone so it's really nice what do you find that you get from doing speaking engagements uh well first and foremost you get better at speaking the more you speak the better you speak which is always good and that helps with sales and marketing when you're going to get jobs Um, second of all it gives you exposure and third of all, I suppose it helps clarify your own thinking. So if you if you want to speak about something that you're you've been focused on a lot, so as a coder, I spend a lot of time staring at screens trying to build things. When you have to explain it to other people, you can actually clarify your own thoughts, and that's a really powerful and useful thing to do. Yeah, it's like I guess it's like writing a blog post kind of does that, but then almost taking it up a gear where you think, right, not only am I writing this blog post, but I'm reading it out loud in front of people. Effectively, I have to be confident. Totally, yeah. There is there is the fear factor that you don't always get with the blog post. Yeah. Can you remember when you first did speaking engagements, like how that felt? Yeah, it felt, I mean, the, the best advice I give everyone when they start doing speaking engagements is speak about what you know. It's a lot easier to 
waffle through uh, a subject if you know it inside out. So that was that's what I did. I spoke about stuff I knew and stuff I was passionate about. So I'd started up the London WooCommerce meetup and I'd talk about how WooCommerce can help you and things you can do with WooCommerce. And likewise, I've just taken that same approach to talking about what I do with WordPress and building products and building WordPress sites with as a coder. That's cool. So if somebody listening has never spoken at an event, you'd think it's worth giving a shot? I think start small, give it a go. There are lots of places that encourage you and can help you speak. For example, just a little plug in Brighton next week, we're organizing a workshop for public speaking. I can't speak for any other community, but for the WordPress community, we go out of our way to encourage people to speak and help people speak because it can really help their business and and a lot of people have some valuable stuff to say. So it's always good for everyone to Im- improve their knowledge by learning from each other. Mm. Now, you trade as a brand name, don't you? I do. Yes, Raisin. When you first went freelance, did you begin as that? Or did that come about when you started to grow a- as an agency? It was. I started that very early on. I'm not sure how important it is. I remember somebody telling me at the time, well, if Boots can sell medicine with a name like Boots, you can sell anything with any of brand names. So I don't know if you need to overthink it too much. <laughs> That's a great point. Although I do like because if you go to your website now, and there'll be a link at beingfreelance.com, even though it has the brand name of Raison, it's still the very first line is, hi, I'm Elliot. And I found it. So it's uh, it still has the... Um, a very personal feel to it. Totally. I mean, I sometimes get a request, as I'm sure everyone does, from an, in their email inbox, hi, we're an agency, click here. And if you go on a website and it doesn't say anything about the team, then I don't know who I'm dealing with. We're people dealing with people. That's all businesses, people dealing with people. So I think it's really important to say who you are, who your team are, and just be frank about the situation. Don't try and be bigger than you are. Just be honest. And let's chat about work-life balance them because do you have kids by the way i don't know i have a three-month-old baby boy how have you managed that transition in into that monumental shift in life i think it goes in part one of one of my decisions to uh, to wind down the agency and focus more as a freelancer is all the preparation to our plan to have children and you know get a better work-life balance so that was yeah we sort of approached it in advance I see. So that was a deliberate plan of thinking having a family is going to be stressful enough. We don't need the stress of an agency. And I guess it gives you more freedom. It, uh, it does give me more freedom. Mom and baby both need help. And I think working nine to six is really hard. I, I've hats off to anyone who works a full-time job and be a dad or a mum. That's a hard job. So um, I'm really fortunate to be a freelancer and try and get a better balance. One of the the simple, most simple things I did, and I wish I'd done it earlier, but uh, double your rates and half the amount of time you work is a great strategy. And it's something that has helped me and um, I know helps a lot of other freelancers. Interesting. But I guess it could be it could be tempting to double your rates and still take on exactly the same amount of work. Yes. And and there are some months that you do that, but there are other months when the work isn't isn't so much and um and you don't have to, to worry so much, you know, make hay when the sun's out, but you don't have to panic if work dries up for a few weeks. Is that something that you've built up over time, that confidence? Yes, it it totally is. I mean, it, it, there's many many factors building up a financial buffer. Also the way I work now is completely different to how I worked at the start. I used to work in chunks of project i'd sell you a website for a certain price 
and then I'd get it done whether I budgeted five days or 20 days you know however matter how long it took I would get it done and that can be quite a dangerous approach I found because it's very hard to estimate for many projects and you can go over and you're the one who's absorbing all that risk yeah how how do you get on dealing with clients I like to tell clients I've got a foolproof process because it's so simple it, it can't really fail and that's I bill by the day contrary to much of the advice out there which is all about uh, selling value I sell days and if a project looks like it's going to be eight days I'll, I'll say look this looks like eight days um, you can book me out for eight days and I'll keep you updated with how it's going if it turns out to be 10 days you'll need to book another two days to get the job done or if they add new functionality um, as clients sometimes like to do that's fine but it'll take more time to do and I'll bill you accordingly I found billing per day be really helpful approach to freelancing how do clients take to that though when like do they fear that there's going to be some sort of open-ended figure though they do and it all comes down to trust and that's the biggest thing i can i can say is that actually some of the clients i've had some of the smaller clients who don't normally work like that have been burnt by saying i would get a website done for a silly price and then it never got done and never got complete so they come to me in full knowledge that that's what happens and i say look you can i could promise you that i could do this in eight days but it's better for you and better for me if i'm upfront about how long it's taken and if i'm getting it done on time and if it needs more time better that you spend two extra days of development rather than a project that sort of gets deprioritized by the developer so i think that trust is the key and if and if they can see you're working and they like what you're doing they'll trust you more and, n- and not to abuse that trust either yeah i was going to say that I suppose the fact is if you said somebody it would take eight days and then it took 16, then pretty soon word would spread that your timeframes are always out sort of thing. You couldn't be grossly out, could you? I guess so, no. I know. And I also think that that's another classic mistake is you're, you're one day to go till you've said it's finished and then you, you drop them an email saying, oh, actually this is going to be another week or so. No, you would never never do that because that's just poor form. You, you sort of say pretty quickly, as soon as you realize it's going to take longer, look, we'll have a conversation. Let's have regular updates. So on day two, you know, I estimated eight days, but I'm looking at the code. I've got my head in the code straight away and I can see that this was this is going to be a much bigger project. I've had jobs. The, the, the client said, look, this is 80% complete. Can you work on the project? I look, look into the project and I say, look, this needs a complete rewrite. It's not the... Uh, 15 days or I've, I've quoted this needs a complete rewrite we're talking about six months of work here so again honestly it'd be better better to tell them now than sort of struggle on and try and hit some arbitrary estimate that you've created mm. and within that sort of way of working do, do you ever find yourself having to justify what that day rate is on yeah on some clients i, I think the best thing to do with day rates is to say uh, say look there's a there's a range of day rates everything from from 100 to 1,000 a day. And I sit at this point, and as a consequence, this is the quality of code I'll do, I, I produce, and this is this is how I work. If you want to go for someone cheaper, then you can. And I'll, I explain, I even refer lots of people in Brighton who have uh, similar skill sets to me, but maybe uh, less depth in the code, but can build fantastic sites. If that's, that's the budget of the client, then I suggest they go there. So being picky with your clients is really important and not saying yes to every client. Yeah, interesting. And I guess that that also, as you say, protects you against when they decide to add other features as it goes along. It's like, well, okay, fair enough, but that's going to have this implication. 
Yes. I mean, the, that was the danger of e-commerce sites is that they're so huge. You can't specify absolutely every element of it in an easily understood document. So when the client says, oh, we need this and this, and they made the assumption that it would be included, you're the one who picks up the slack. So yes, working on a, working on a day rate is much better for everyone involved, I believe. Yeah. And is there then an ongoing relationship in maintaining those sort of sites? Or Yes, I have ongoing relationships and I work it the same way. I say, would you like to book one day a month or one day or four days every three months or depending on the clients, uh, have a sort of uh, an ongoing relationship, but I still quantify it in units of days. Yeah, but uh, so that's nice. So it's almost like a retainer kind of servicing kind of thing going on where you kind of have a, an idea of what sort of income is coming your way as well as workload. Totally. I did a, um, a product that helps me uh, manage my time. I think I'm one of a, of a handful of people who actually use it, but it really helps me. And as I was doing the marketing for it, I did a questionnaire to 100 people in Brighton, how they track their time. Because I was fascinated. Am I the only person who charges per day or do other people charge in other ways? It was really interesting. So out of the 100, 20% charged by 15-minute blocks, 26% by hourly blocks, 9% by half-day blocks, 13% by 30 minutes, and only 9% by day. And everyone else did it some random bits. I had people who did it per minute or per six minutes and all sorts of odd stuff or five percent did just fixed price projects so i think working in a in a a unit of time that's per day or per half day is the smartest way and that makes up about 18 percent of what everyone else did in brighton of the people i asked Mm. so you say you created a, a product what for your own time tracking it is. It's the, it's the classic thing a freelancer does. They have a great idea because they, they like the way they work and they build a product around it. I used to use Google Calendar and it was it was a bit lacking because I wanted it to sort of sum up what days I'd worked for different clients and tell me how much they'd worked. So I basically built that. It's a calendar. I say, today I'm working for Asda and I've worked eight hours for them, which is a day. And it works out how much I've worked for that client per month. So I do it with, every time I get a job, I add it into my calendar, I set the day rate, I set how many hours or days I'm working for them, and then I get a list at the end of the month of um, how much each client has produced in, uh, in income. Cool. And is that available to other people, or did you just create it for yourself? Yeah, it is available. It's, um, it's called Simple Hours, and, it's, and the website is simplehours.com. Hmm. Have you gone on to create other things or was it just that one need for you? I've created many products um, and building things as a developer. I can speak as a developer. Building my own products has been a fantastic way to learn about building products and improving my code and a fantastic way to learn about marketing and the whole process of bringing a product attraction and trying to create other sources of revenue. So I've built Simple Hours, I've built email tools, I've built analytics tools. And yeah, Simple Hours is my most recent. And I've also released a product framework called ProdPress, which works alongside WordPress. And it's a smart way of building products, which gives you a bit more depth and a bit more flexibility than just building in bread and butter PHP with WordPress does. Awesome. So all of those extra things that you're doing on the side feed back in ultimately to your work. Totally. I consider them as sort of R&D. When I'm working on my own projects, I'm improving my skill set and I'm uh, giving back to the community, hopefully. So yeah, simplehours.com at the moment, it's totally free. I, I use it all the time. 
maybe someone else will find it useful. Um, and if they do, that'd be fantastic. Cool. Now, I always do this thing where I ask for three facts about yourself and to make two true and one a lie and let me figure out the lie. So what have you got for me, Elliot? I have been in a plane crash. I have um, motorbiked across India and I have sailed from Thailand through to Bali. You've been in a plane crash, you motorbiked across India and you've sailed from Thailand to Bali. Correct. Crikey. Perhaps one of them is a lie. I mean, not many people get to tell us about a plane crash. When was your plane crash? (laughs) Um, That was when I was unfortunately too young to remember. I was about six, uh, five or six. And yeah, I was was on a small chartered plane in... uh, with my family and it, and it came down on the beach and landed in the sea but thankfully everyone was fine oh my god like where, whereabouts like in in the uk it was uh seychelles actually wow you might motorbike across india when was that i don't even remember that was that was about a decade ago went from ladakh down to chandigarh and messed about in the punjab on the motorbike it was good fun did did you take the motorbike with you, or did you go there and then buy one? Like, no, I I, I um I was getting a bit bored of the buses, so I um I saw a motorbike for hire and uh, I thought I'd give that a go. Ah, I see. And then you sailed from Thailand to Bali. So, well, like as in single handedly, or just on a? I, I, my geography is not great. I don't even know how far that is. That might be like going to the Isle of Wight from uh, from Portsmouth, for all I know. Um, how how is that a big deal? It's a very big deal. Um, you know, recreating some of the old trade routes. We uh, a group of uh, of us decided to set sail and uh, and see if we could uh, catch the trade winds down to Bali and find some sun and sea and surf. Trade? What sort of boat was it? It was a clipper. Oh, oh, look, I don't know. These are all very exotic. I like the fact that maybe you were sitting on a bus and saw somebody on a motorbike and therefore got on a motorbike. That feels true. Plane crashes, it is so rare to survive a plane crash, but that kind of feels like the lie. Thailand to Bali, you seemed quite knowledgeable about that as well. If you're going to motorbike across India, then you might well sail from Thailand to Bali. Those both feel true. I don't honestly believe that you've been in a plane crash. Like, that that honestly feels like, yeah, you've never been in a plane crash. Well, the plane crash, although I can't remember it, there are photos of that prove it, I'm afraid to say. Oh, my God. So you really were in a plane crash? I was, yeah, I was. Like, did, did it just, like, land in the city? Did it break up? I think it was an emergency landing on the beach, um, which turned a bit sour because the the plane then flipped and landed in the sea. Oh, my God. That's quite cool, isn't it? Or slash very lucky. Wow. That, you know, it's probably just as well you don't remember that. So in that case, you've never sailed from Thailand to Bali. That is the lie. That is the lie. Unfortunately, not able to afford a boat, a yacht, to to whiz off uh, across to Indonesia yet, but um, working on it with the with the freelance career. <laughs> now, if you could tell your younger self one thing about being freelance, what would that be? Would have started learning earlier, really. Yeah, start learning. Never too uh, too old to start coding and get into new habits and new practices. 
Yeah, because, I mean, that's something we didn't really dwell on, is the fact that you really did change tack. I mean, you took the experience from, from your other job, but coding was a totally new skill to you, right? Well, ish. I, I coded, you know, back in the day on the BBC Micro, um, but I neglected it between the ages of sort of 13 and thirteen and 20. Yeah, so I, co- I coded late in life, and I, always, I wasn't a natural coder. I wouldn't say I was a natural coder, but I really get into it now. But the fact is you soon felt like you had enough skill to make money from it. Yes. Yeah, totally. Um, practice. I think building my own stuff in my own time was a big help in, in getting the skills good. Elliot, thank you so much for talking to us. Good stories as well. Thank you. Uh, you can follow links through to what Elliot is up to at beingfreelance.com. We'll put links through to Raison and also uh, to Simple Hours, for example. So go to beingfreelance.com. And while you're there, check out the vlog and the articles. And of course, there's over 100 guests for you to listen to. Wherever you get your podcast, make sure you've hit subscribe. Hit subscribe on YouTube and it's all good. But um, in the meantime, thanks so much for chatting to us. And all the best being freelance thanks steve